before we start this episode, just a really quick mention from the people who pay our bills, HubSpot. So here's the question. Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Sometimes, actually. Yeah, I'm thinking something like Lucky Charms, Candy Floss, some kind of soup. Something horny. Well, actually, we don't know. But what we do know is that 20% of unicorn startups are using HubSpot, and for good reason. Yes, HubSpot's all-in-one platform levels up your sales software and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you can save big on your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. There will be a huge difference in happiness between the person who's on £20,000 compared to the person who's on 50 and the person that's on 150. There will be some difference between the person who is earning 50,000 a year and 150,000 a year. There will be basically zero difference between anybody earning 150,000 pound a year or somebody who's earning 2 million pounds a year. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al and I'm a business owner. And we are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. Welcome back. If you're on YouTube, drop us a comment. Let us know you're, you're watching. We only started the channel a, a little while ago, like maybe four videos ago. So every every view we get, we get really excited. Like, Leanne, we've had two more views. I'm not sure. I don't know. Mr. Beast must have started at zero. So, um, oh, know. he talks about it quite openly. Yeah, how his first few videos got nothing. It's um, and actually his first viral, his first not. I don't think it even went viral, but got a bit of traction. Was him counting from one to a hundred thousand? Well, and and luckily that's what today's <laughs> podcast is. So, <laughs> <laughs> one, two. Three. <laughs> talking of talking of three, this is now the third house in Sicily we've been living in, um, and the third time we've had to set up our podcast equipment. So bear with us. You know, we're doing the best we can. Lighting's not super in here. And uh, also I'm standing on one leg, I think, to try and make sure I'm in frame. Uh, but anyway, so Leah, what are we talking about this week? Well, this week we are continuing our, our summer scheduled and keeping things a little bit lighter. Uh, so this week we are talking about the psychology of happiness. Lovely. And what a lovely subject to talk about over summer when hopefully you've got a bit of time off, a bit of downtime. You're um, you're doing something to make you happy, whether that's going abroad, whether that's staying at home, whether that's playing with your kids, playing with your dog, playing with your cat. Oh, it does, I suppose you play with cats, really. I think the cats are just quite indifferent to their owners, aren't they? Says the dog owner. <laughs> <laughs> not, a, not a cat person, not a cat person. But don't let that put you off. So, um, this is a little bit of a loosey-goosey episode, as Leanne described it, because we're not necessarily, we're not, normally we structure it, but today we've just got, Leanne's got some notes, she's a psychologist, I'm going to be talking to you about happiness, we'll probably dot in some of our own anecdotes and etc. as we go along. Leah, do you want to start off with maybe defining happiness? I don't know. Well, I thought I'd start off with the news roundup. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> so it's our favourite time of the week. It's the news roundup. Cue the jingle. Uh, yeah, so we had some complaints last week that the news roundup wasn't even mentioned, let alone completed. So, um, yeah, after quite a, a testing week of responding to complaint emails, I thought it was best to just 
put the news roundup back in. That's a good idea because I, I mean the poor complaints department team, like you know, there's eight of oh, them yeah. who deal with we deal with all the complaints, and they were just overwhelmed, you know. And, and we, mm. we don't like working them too hard, but yeah, they had to do. They had to pull double shifts, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They did. So it's back, and I have a new word. New word alert. Iliism. I'm sorry, what? Iliism. Now, I've seen The Handmaid's Tale, so I think I know what this is. Please? No, I don't. It just sounded like something from The Handmaid's Tale, like, oh, they they are... From Gilead. Yeah, from Gilead. <laughs> Iliism from Gilead. So, Iliism isn't necessarily a, sign, a scientific, a psychology term. It's, it's a liter- literary term used to explain how somebody refers to themselves in the third person. But what recent research is showing is that by using this technique as part of our therapy and self-coaching can actually improve not only our wisdom, but also our emotional intelligence and regulation. Am I right? So is this right that I would say Al is happy would make me happier than saying I am happy? Have I got it? Yeah. So there's, there's, it's kind of an extension of previous ideas in coaching to help generate objective thinking, different perspectives and empathy. So there's a very um, popular exercise called two chairs, which is where you you move, you literally move yourself and go, right, I'm now me, explain this problem. It might be a disagreement I'm having with a sibling. And I will explain how I'm feeling, what I think about it. And then I move to a different chair and pretend that I am said sibling and talk about how perhaps they perceive the situation and what they might say and, and think and feel. So what this is saying is taking it a step further to do the similar thing, but when referring to yourself, referring to yourself in the third person. So what's really interesting in terms of the research is it's been shown that by doing this in kind of a, a diary format, so keeping a reflective journal, but compared to, so there's two groups, control group wrote about themselves in the first person, second group um, wrote about themselves in the third person. And what they found is that after four weeks, the group that refers themselves in the third person then performed better in things like reasoning, decision-making and wisdom-based tests. Very interesting. Mm. So if I'm sorry, just just want to make sure I get this. So what I shouldn't be doing is going around and talking to people and saying, Al is very happy today. That's not what we're talking about. <laughs> just be really freaking annoying. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's more of a case of as part of your, your reflective practice, perhaps referring to yourself in the third person can help you a little bit in terms of that distancing. And it makes sense as well, because when we, I guess it kind of ties a few things together. So we know from neuroscience that um, that whole transference of taking emotions from our brains and putting them on paper can actually distance ourselves from them and reduce the impact of them. Those of you who maybe have us up loud would have heard some explosions in the background. Um, We're in Sicily, it's midday, and for some unknown reason, they're letting off huge fireworks to celebrate San Sebastian or something. Yeah, I think it is San Sebastian. They do them in the morning as well, which is brilliant. But our dog is very scared, so if you you hear him knocking around, that would be why. But what was I saying... Yeah, extension neuroscience, we know that that transference actually helps to distance us from those emotions and process them more objectively and make better uh, or objective decisions rather than emotionally fueled decisions. So this is a bit of an extension of it. Really interesting bit of research, new to me. I'm going to find out more because I think it might be some quite interesting um, applications for coaching. 
Uh, so yeah, I will, I'll leave a link in the show notes. It is pretty interesting research. Interesting. Also, any of you who are literary who are listening or are literary geniuses or genii, um, can you explain? Because I'm. Is that, is that the plural? I, I like it. Yeah, I know. I'm going to use it though. Genii. Genii. Um, explain to us because I've heard something in my head. I've got something like Homer's Iliad or something like that, and I'm wondering if. I'm obviously, clearly, that's going to be really wrong. But I'm wondering for some kind of Greek mythology or Greek writer, and that's where the Iliad Iliadism comes from. So I think it, it is actually. I think it is based in Greek Greek philosophy. Okay. Yeah. Bang on. So if you know what I'm talking about, and I clearly don't, then um, get on LinkedIn, jump on the email, get on Instagram, send a carrier pigeon. Let us know what we're going, what's going on, and what what that actually means. Anything else, lovely Lee? Yes, I do. So this story popped up in my newsfeed this week and to say it was concerning was an understatement. So I'm going to read you a little extract from this article by um, Huffington Post. So what it said is that, that Florida, the state in the US, has effectively banned advanced placement psychology classes from being taught in the state. So the college board said in a statement, we are sad to have learned that today the Florida Department of Education has effectively banned AP psychology in the state by instructing Florida superintendents that teaching foundational content on sexual orientation and gender identity is illegal under state law. So what? where this has come from apparently is a guy a government uh, governor ron DeSantis, the 2024 republican um presidential candidate or is, is running to be um basically he is pushing through legislation called stop woke act and don't say gay law so what it's basically done is it meant that the content that um basically any kind of education on racism sex gender sexual orientation has been banned with the thought that this is corrupting the minds of our young people um i'm i'm not quite sure i've processed this enough to respond to it yet what what, what are your thoughts my first initial thought is what the actual fuck but then having said that we are just oh, i am just hearing one side of it there might be another side of it we don't know and we, we're not like super left wokey people at the same time we kind of like i think our worldview is leave well alone you know and just let everyone get on with their own stuff and this sounds like to me it sounds like you're saying we can't even mention transgender racism whatever in ap psychology because do we not need to teach this in terms of some kind of like I don't know, in the same way you would around mental illness. That's not my opinion. I, I think it's all complete bullshit and it, it's horrifying. But I guess what I'm not connecting the dots with is that even if you think this, there is this over-liberal syllabus in the education system, by just not talking about it at all doesn't necessarily seem to be shifting the education. It's just censorship, which I, I, that's concerning to me. I can't add anything to that. You've put that put that perfectly, absolutely perfectly. So speaking of education, Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture is now part of Skilding, isn't it, Al? It is. Skillsding or Skilding? Skilding, S-K-I-L-L-D-I-N-G dot com. Basic premise is a brand new platform. It's very exciting. And Kevin, one of the co-founders, approached us a few months ago. They kind of saw an issue with podcasts. They love podcasts, huge fans of, of the that kind of content medium. 
but kind of felt that there wasn't an opportunity or a very accessible or an easy opportunity for people to consolidate the learning and lessons they've picked up from the podcast into practice. So they have developed a platform called Skilding to do exactly this. Yeah, really cool. And I think there's lots of actionable points in podcasts that you kind of forget because you just listen to a podcast when you're doing the hovering or you're driving or something. This is a really good way to reinforce the ideas behind each episode and actually create yourself a little checklist so that you can go make sure that you are actually implementing all these ideas. I know I must have listened to thousands of podcasts, probably missed out on hundreds of thousands of great ideas just because I was out the dog and I was like, oh, um, oh I'll, I'll, I'll re-listen to it later never do yeah and that's what it is so it's it's quite cool have a little look so you'll you'll see kind of the audio of the episode is embedded you have a different page it will talk about the the competencies that you're um that you're consolidating and you're learning it has specific tasks that you can do you can tick them off as they're done it's pretty cool um so yeah go and check it out and if you would like a free three-month subscription. All you have to do is leave us a review, hopefully a good one, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, Leave us a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll pick out three winners over the next month um, and refer you on to Kevin at Skilding for your free three months. That's hard to say. Free three months. And if you do leave a review, which we hope you do, then just let us know. Um, drop us an email. You see our email at the bottom of all the show notes, just because otherwise we won't be able to find you because we only see your username. We don't see your contact details if you do leave a review. So just let us know and let us know how you get on with Skilding. Yeah, I hope I hope you enjoy it. We'll, uh, we'll see how it all goes. Okay, Leah. So the meat and potatoes of the episode, I think it is. Did we, did we say this was the definition of happiness? I worry that we're excluding vegetarians and vegans by calling it the meat and potatoes of the episode. Is that being a bit too woke? Or? No, I would say, <laughs> I would say that by saying meat and potatoes means there's something for everyone there. There's something for a vegan, something for a fruitarian, there's something for a pescatarian, there's something for a carnivore. Isn't it a euphemism for something else as well, though? Meat and potatoes. Mm. That's like meat and two veg, I think, is what ah. I think. Completely different, not potatoes. It's about the vegetables. <laughs> different idea for very different types of activities, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so back to the content, should we say, rather than meat potatoes. So we are talking today about what is happiness. We Obviously, we've got a psychologist in front of us, although Leanne has said to me before we press record, say, look, you know, I'm a business psychologist, so... You know, this this isn't necessarily my, I'm not going to say forte because it is, but it isn't necessarily my specialism. Um, so I know that you've done a little bit of research on this and that we'll be asking you lots and lots of questions. Um, can we, do we start off with a definition of happiness? Would that be the best way to start? Yeah, this isn't really my area of expertise per se, because happiness is an emotion and the study of emotions is its own, its own thing in psychology. I'm much more familiar with well-being and you might be wondering why that's different. And I think that 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 is where the definition lies. Happiness is a state, it is emotion, it's something that we feel for certain periods of time and then it goes again. And I think there is this um, maybe unhelpful pursuit of happiness in terms of that is the state that we should be in all the time. Whereas actually, you know, from a, an evolutionary perspective, perspective, our emotions are a very primitive signaling system. So being happy all the time 
wouldn't be very helpful for our survival if we're in you know situations where we should be feeling threatened and frightened that that you know increases our awareness and our reflexes and our fight and flight response uh, and we need that to stay alive so happiness is useful in the moment but to be happy all the time would probably end up in a very early demise and I think the misconception is that happiness and or rather unhappiness and positive well-being can coexist at the same time. So I suppose if you are happy, then people often say, I'm happy, I'm contented. If you're content with something, it means that there's no real incentive to grow, learn, develop skills, etc. So I see what you're saying, that if you are happy in your job and you don't feel any stress, and when I say stress, I mean positive stress, but any kind of like need to grow, to develop, to be better, that's not a great situation to be in as, a, as an employee, is it? No, and that can actually, that's been called rust out before. So right. this feeling where we feel uh, a sense of complacency in our in our roles, in our work, because we're not being challenged and we're not being pushed. Um, that might be nice for for a period of time, particularly after a period of, of disruption and change. But in terms of, of long term, those feelings will very quickly turn into frustration. Okay. So when we talk about the psychology, is there like some kind of psychological theory around happiness? Have we got a formula or something? Is it like, um, is it like that film where he, where he he solves the formula on the chalkboard? (laughs) What's interesting about happiness and other, other emotions like it, such as joy, and there has been found a difference between joy and happiness. It's all quite complicated, this psychology of emotions. But what is quite interesting about these positive emotions is that until very recently, psychology is very much focused on the human deficit and what's 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 wrong with us. Why are we so fucked up? And that's because that was the need, you know, how do we how do we support people with these mental health challenges? And and that in itself was an evolution from it being, you know, some kind of paranormal or spiritual um I don't know what's the word being possessed in some way to actually being a human condition and and, and a condition of mental health. So in terms of, of the focus of psychology shift, shifting to more positive emotions, that really kind of gained a lot more traction in the late 1990s. And this was because a psychologist called Seligman became the president of the American Association of Psychology, um, or sorry, the American Psychology Association. And when he became president, his his mandate was to shift the focus of psychology from deficit uh, and, and, and surviving to trying to find a way to use psychology to help humans to transition from surviving to thriving with the viewpoint very much like we spoke about a few episodes ago with business and community and their research into into well-being and well-being 2.0 that actually the benefit society will be much much greater if we think uh, much more and spend much more time on this um, I guess this missing majority in the middle that has for for a long time been neglected by by psychologists and by mental health professionals and that was the birth of the positive psychology movement and since then there has been a lot more funding a lot more interest in researching uh, emotions and positive emotions such as happiness so is there a um, agreed theory no of course not Al, but there's no agreed theory of anything in psychology it all depends on your approach, what you believe, and and also how these theories are standing up to 
uh, more modern day interrogation. There is a bit of an issue around uh, replication in the psychology world at the moment. Very famous studies that have failed to be replicated. So those theories, long accepted theories, are starting to be questioned. Um, so it is a it is a it is a challenge. But there are some kind of typically agreed observations when it comes to happiness. And the first is around brain chemistry. So this brain chemistry, I've heard of these phrases like dopamine, Serafinovich. Serafin- <laughs> <laughs> I've heard of them. I don't... Stephanie Serafinovich. <laughs> I don't really Serbian know. Serbian tennis player, you know? Are they? <laughs> you got me there. So I don't really understand what they are and what they do and what you... Do you want more of one or less of another? How does it work? Again, it, it depends on the circumstance, doesn't it? There's going to be some circumstance where you want more of one and less than the other. But but kind of to, to very simply, and, and again, I am not a neuroscientist by any way, but very simply, dopamine. We've heard of dopamine. So dopamine helps us feel pleasure. So we know that when we're in a state of happiness, our dopamine levels are typically up. Then we've got serotonin. So serotonin is produced when we're feeling a sense of satisfaction or importance. So when you think about those things in terms of then reflecting in in what we might feel as happiness, maybe not necessarily, you know, you might have achieved a really um, challenging goal at work. I think that feeling satisfied is different to maybe feeling happy. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I was going to give you a couple of examples. So um, for example, happiness. So dopamine helps you feel pleasure. So if you, let's say you've been craving a KFC, for example, and then you get it and you have that first bite, you'd get dopamine from that. But you wouldn't necessarily get, what was the other one, the satisfaction one? Serotonin. You wouldn't necessarily get serotonin unless you felt like satisfied. So, so for example, if you've got a project at work, then it might be really hard work. It might be really stressful. But when it's finished, you have this serotonin because you feel satisfaction. You might not necessarily have got any dopamine during that project, but you still have this satisfaction. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it, it's all these kind of chemicals working together to give us, I guess, what would be the overarching positive state or positive state of emotions. But would we necessarily call that happiness? And that, again, is uh, is subjective as well, isn't it? So yeah. So yeah, serotonin may well play a role. And then next we have oxytocin. So oxytocin produces feelings of love, Al, love and connection. Oh, so you'd have oxytocin at... Burning Man, you'd have oxy- oxytocin if you did MDMA. You'd have oxytocin. <laughs> <laughs> do not do MDMA. That's not a good idea. Um, you'd have, you'd feel that when you're back with your family at Christmas or you're out with your partner and having it in a beautiful meal. Is that the sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And typically as well, this is where a lot of the arguments happen in, in around... Um, Around sex as well, um, oxytocin is one of the main chemicals that is released in in women when we when we engage with a, a sexual partner, which is why we feel this sense of of connection. Uh, whereas for males, the male brain, it's actually much more endorphins, which is our our next chemical that is released, and that basically triggers positive feelings when you do something that you enjoy. So not necessarily a sense of connection, but it's that kind of it's that kind of rush um, that you that people may get when they're doing something that they enjoy. Okay, so these four, I'm looking down looking down at the notes I've just made, but these four are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. So shall we just go through a work example and see if we can apply those four to a work scenario? Yes. So if we're talking about someone who is 
Um, they're a coder because that's that's relatively easy to, to get here. So you're building a piece of software on app or something like that. So your dopamine will give you pleasure when guessing when you're planning it out and you're envisaging what the actual app is going to do and how cool it's going to be. That would be dopamine. I think that might be more serotonin because I think dopamine is very much pleasure. It's that feeling of, of indulgence that's going to raise dopamine perhaps a little bit more. Um, whereas serotonin is that sense of satisfaction, maybe that feeling of importance because you're doing important work or you feel that you're the only competent person to do said work or the endorphins because you're actually engaging in a task that you really enjoy. That makes sense. And so in the work environment then, so this idea of oxytocin, which produces feelings of love and connection, is that inappropriate in a work environment? Or is that like part of a team? Do you... Do you get that from part of a team? Absolutely, yeah. When, you know, love and connection aren't always romantic or sexual. They can be, you know, those relationships that we have with friends, that we have with people that we respect, that we have this sense of, of belonging in our work, people who believe in the same things that that we do. That is very much going to increase our levels of, of oxytocin. So we've got these four chemicals. I think I understand them. Um, what's the difference between happiness and well-being? You said at the beginning that... that One's a state, but you didn't really go into what well-being was. Yeah, so they they can they can coexist. So happiness is a positive emotion, and positive emotions are a construct of well-being. Typically, people who have high levels of well-being feel positive emotions more frequently. But for example, you could be experiencing positive well-being in every aspect of your life, and a close family member dies. You're going to feel unhappiness in that in that moment in that state. Does that detriment is that detrimental to your well-being? Not necessarily if it is if it is just a you know a, a, a temporary um, state of emotions that you're feeling because of the the context of of the trauma that you're experiencing. So well-being is a bit more multifaceted. Positive emotions are a part of well-being. We know relationships, positive relationships are a big part of well-being. We know that um, engagement in what we're doing in terms of our our social connections, our work connections, that sense of meaning and purpose and accomplishments, feeling that we are we are achieving the goals that we set out to do are really positive for our well-being as well. So well-being is a bit more multifaceted. Um, and we can, yeah, we can we can be unhappy and experience positive well-being and probably have bad well-being overall and experience short periods of happiness. For example, when you go on holiday from a job that you really dislike, you are hugely happy on holiday. Is that reflected in your well-being? Maybe not. Really good example. Really good example. So is the argument that we should be striving for well-being rather than happiness? Yeah, because happiness is a state. It is, it is, it is going to come and it is going to go and it is going to peak and it's going to trough and it is going to very much depend on many different factors. It's not a destination. It is something that we experience in a moment and it will come and go. Well-being is something that is part of our, our makeup, part of our fulfillment with all aspects of our life and probably the biggest influence in terms of our, our overall mental health in terms of nurturing our well-being, whether that be psychological, social, financial, etc. So, um, so yeah, happiness, the pursuit of happiness, I think is maybe oversimplified and I guess in the media overhyped. And I think my concern is when you hear people say, oh, when I achieve that, I'll be happy. Once I get that pay rise, I'll be happy. And yes, you might be for a period of time, but it is a state 
happiness is is not a destination. So in terms of teams, so we're leading a team, you're leading a team and you you should be much more cognizant of your team's well-being than actually their happiness. That's what we're striving for as leaders. Is that right? Yeah. And I think this is also, I've had clients say to me, you know, well, of course I want my team to be happy, but it's just not realistic because we're going to have fluctuating workloads and periods of stress. And that's not, that's not the pursuit in terms of, that's why we don't talk about happiness at work. We talk about well-being at work because there are many different different elements to well-being that can maintain our sense of resilience during these periods where we may be unhappy. So, um, so yeah, in terms of a work context, I wouldn't necessarily worry about your people being happy, um, but I would absolutely worry about them having positive well-being. So can we increase... So if we, if we assume that we've nailed the well-being and everyone's happy... Sorry, that was a bad, bad choice of words. <laughs> if we assume that we've nailed the well-being then can we actually increase the happiness? Is there some kind of dial that we can we can dial up to increase the happiness? This has been the main focus of the research. And there are a lot of psychologists who don't believe happiness can be increased. Right. And there is a pocket of, of psychologists that believe that it can. And they quote various different data things, some of which are a little bit controversial. So some studies have shown that in general, these are generalizations from the data, um, that have shown that typically married people are happier. There is also some research that shows that um, having children can have a small effect on happiness, uh, but it's actually negative. So people without children tend to be happier. Interesting. And in terms of finances as well, we see a huge uh, difference in the happiness of people who are from low economic backgrounds um, compared to people who are on about fifty to ninety thousand pounds a year. It is exponential the difference. You know, if you're earning five thousand pound a year compared to fifty thousand pound a year, what we've kind of found though is after ninety upwards, there is no impact on happiness. Do you mean there's no impact on happiness? As in, if you've got three groups of three people standing in front of you, one who's on twenty thousand a year, one who's on sixty thousand a year, which is between that fifty and ninety range you talked about, mm -hmm. and one on one hundred and twenty. Do you mean that there is no increase in happiness between the sixty thousand and the one hundred and twenty, or the difference between the one on twenty thousand and the one hundred and twenty thousand? So there will be a huge difference in happiness between the person who's on twenty thousand pounds compared to the person who's on fifty and the person that's on one hundred and fifty there will be some difference between the person who is earning 50,000 a year and 150,000 a year. There will be basically zero difference between anybody earning 150,000 pound a year or somebody who's earning 2 million pounds a year. Interesting. Now, I've heard this anecdotally, particularly on Twitter, where I follow a lot of people who are, who are very successful. And yet a lot of people, particularly Alex Hermosi, who is one of my heroes, um, not just for the beard, um, but uh, he's, he's just amazing. And he says it's a game. In fact, his entire podcast is called The Game. He says money's a game because once you get over a certain period of time, it's a certain amount of money you're earning, you are playing a game to get more. And it's just like being in a casino. It's not that you need more money. He doesn't need to earn another 10, 10 20, 30 million this year. It's his game plan and it's how he gets his dopamine I'm guessing and his serotonin is by playing the game for dopamine and serotonin by getting another 10 million which he doesn't really know what to do with but it doesn't matter because he's played the game and he's won yeah and I think this is also where we can we can see leaders or politicians especially recently given the cost of living crisis falling into this trap of not 
not really understanding or empathizing with the impact it's having on people who are on lower salaries. So I think it was Rishi Sunak, the UK Prime Minister, who was a right twat and said something like, I'm not particularly political, I've voted for all the different parties in the UK. But it was just a, it was just a bad, it was more of a PR bad move. He said something like um, that people need to hold their nerve with the cost of living crisis and basically this will pass, hold your nerve. And I saw a, a woman phone up a radio show that actually Rishi, Rishi Sunak was on. I said, you say to hold my nerve, I find that incredibly patronizing for somebody who is actually a, a billionaire, Rishi Sunak, isn't it? Him and his, his wife. Um, because, you know, how do I hold my nerve if I can't afford to, to buy my kids shoes because they've grown out the last ones? How can I hold my nerve when I'm not eating two meals a day so I can feed my child? How can I hold my nerve where I'm having to sit in the cold because I can't afford to put the heating on? And I think the difference is because there is such a difference in terms of the experiences and the happiness and the positive emotions that we feel in compared to, as you said, that £5,000 a year to £50,000 a year. Somebody who is is in that state of my happiness isn't increasing the more money I earn, therefore money doesn't equal happiness, is massively overgeneralizing that to people who are on that maybe 50,000 plus. At that level, money doesn't equal happiness. But if you're having to make sacrifices to your quality of life and the, the what you can provide your children, then yes, that is going to make a massive difference to your sense of not only well-being, but your state of happiness. Can I ask you then, because I have this, I know people who have got all the, have ticked the boxes of all, of all the happiness, but they're still miserable bastards. <laughs> and it seems that no matter how much money they earn, how many friends they've got, they're just always moaning. So is it a genetic thing? Is it conditioning from when you're a childhood? What Talk me through it. Nature, nurture, often a big mm. debate. Um, and the answer is always it's a little bit of both. But yeah, a lot of research has has shown, and which is why psychologists, a lot of psychologists think that we can't really influence happiness, is that it is genetic. They kind of almost believe that we have this baseline of happiness that we're born with. And regardless of what we experience in our lives, um, particularly positively, negatively might be a little bit different as we've discussed already, but particularly positively, it won't necessarily increase or if it will it will increase for a short period of time and then it will go back to its it's kind of it's it's normal level so for example if I get a new job I might be like woohoo and I feel really happy for a couple of weeks and then I go back to my base level of happiness or I get a new car or I buy a new pair of shoes and that's why often why these materialistic things are seen with more fleeting states of happiness um because we will we'll see happiness levels go back to that normal um, that normal range quite quickly. And this is actually called the, it's been coined the hedonic treadmill, where we are constantly in this, this pursuit of these highs um, that never, never really last that long. So the, the argument is that yes, it is largely genetic and miserable people. It's just, they were just born that way. <laughs> Fair enough. And I think, I mean, <laughs> a couple of things that I used to do as, uh, when I say a kid, I was probably like 20, 21 um, I went on a Tony Robbins seminar where you walk across the coals um, and you chant and then and, he, and then he makes sure that you, whilst you're in some kind of hypnotic state, tells you about the, uh, the next seminar you can sign up for, which I don't quite know how I felt about that. Um, but also, I've read lots and lots of books on success, happiness, all that kind of thing. Some of the key things I learned were things like when someone says, how are you? Our typical British way of responding is saying, not bad. 
which suggests that, or not too bad, which suggests that, oh, it's really bad, but it's not as bad as it, you know, as it could be. And so I made a conscious effort for about a year of saying, yeah, good. And I know I came across as a bit of a tip when I first started doing this because I was probably a little bit too emphatic about good. But now when someone asks me, I'm like, how are you? It never occurs to me to say not too bad. I always say, yeah, yeah, good. Um, other things like, um, I never. I, I used to think, I want this. I used to do my mood boards and say, I'm going to have a helicopter and a house and all that. And then when I turned sort of 28, 29, I was like, I don't want any of this shit. I don't, I, I just want to be able to go to the cash point and make sure there's 50 euros that I can take out and go and buy whatever I want. Um, I don't need like all this millionaire stuff. So I kind of like felt like I trained myself. Now, is that because do you think as a psychologist that I was naturally probably pretty happy and this has helped? Or do you think that naturally I could have been pessimistic, but this has actually brought me up to a happiness level? Psychologize me, Leanne. <laughs> yeah. So what the thing about happiness is that it's not only subjective to us as individuals, but it's relative. Right. So there's actually some research that was that was done and it's basically framing. And that's why reframing is a really popular technique in, in therapy and in coaching. So research found that if you asked um, a person to to rate their happiness on a scale of one to five, just just that's the first question you ask them. Then you ask them to rate their love life on a scale of one to five. You ask them to rate how well their career is going on a scale of one to five. You ask them to rate how how happy they are with their children. Basically, another another aspect of life. What the researchers found was that the higher you rated that other thing, whether it be work, family, friends, health, dating, if you rated that highly and were then asked to rate your level of happiness, you would rate that level of happiness higher because mm. you'd given yourself an anchor point for how your life was currently currently feeling, um, how you're experiencing your current life. So by saying I'm good, you're reframing that you are good. By things like, you know, gratitude journals, so three things that I'm grateful for, it's exactly the same thing. Three things that I'm grateful for, therefore, how happy am I? What you're basically doing is you're training your brain to be appreciative and in, in terms of the, the the relativeness of happiness, give yourself a little boost that, you know, compared to perhaps other days, I am feeling more happy today. So the little sneaky entrepreneur in me is thinking that if I was to do some kind, if I've made up a survey for my employees, which please don't do that, because use something, use something out there that's good. Um, Leanne and I have got one which you can email us and we'll tell you all about the RX7, but this isn't an advert for that. So if I was making up a survey and I wanted to get good results, then I might start that survey, personalize it for each one of the 20 people and start the question based on something I know they're pretty happy about. So I might say five of them, I know they're happily married. So I go, how, how would you rate your marriage one to five? And then ask them about their job and that's going to skew the results upwards. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it might be weird to ask your employees about how happy they are in their marriage. But you could, for example, say if you just given everybody a round of bonuses, mm. you could say, you know, how happy with your financial financial payback right now? Or for example, if you've just had a team that has won a new contract in. Um, so yeah, reframing the, the entire survey by starting with questions you know are going to have positive sentiment could may well increase your overall employee engagement and happiness ratings. Which we don't want because that'll be artificially in, inflated. Is that right or not? Yeah, it would be. It's not necessarily a, a reflective picture. It's kind of like, you know, I've I've had I've had clients say to me, oh, we won't, we'll 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 leave the 
engagement serving until next month because we had a really bad month. Mm. Uh, we don't want that to kind of taint in. It's like, yeah, I get it. Because the same could be true. You know, the same, the same, the same effect will happen in reverse if you, you know... The, the better people's dating lives were, the happier they were, the worse it was, the, the unhappier they were. Um, so it, it would work the other way. But I guess it's kind of my point of view is like, if you can, if you know the worst case scenario, like this is as bad as it could possibly be, then you've kind of got the information you need to make the changes that are going to make a positive impact, isn't it? Whereas if you have this kind of false sense of everything looking better than it is, you might not be as motivated to to change it. And like you say, have a false false impression of of what is actually going on. So we talked about well-being as something in your teams, in your company's well-being is really, really important. Is it down to the leader? Is it the leader's responsibility to increase happiness? Do you think? I don't think it's the responsibility of the leader to increase happiness because I think that's almost impossible to, to do in terms of an emotion necessarily. But I think it is the leader's responsibility to create an environment that will promote positive well-being. So what I mean by that is there is always going to be an individual element to well-being and happiness. We know that internalizing these achievements can, internalizing achievements helps us overcome feelings of imposter syndrome. Internalizing positive emotions or reframing experiences, um, for example, like bankruptcy, you know, you reframed that experience entirely and now you describe it as one of the best things that ever happened to you. That in itself builds optimism and hope for the future because you've experienced things change. That in itself is those feelings, hope, optimism, self-efficacy, which is like confidence and resilience, that makes up a psychological capital. It's almost like our individual psychological armor against the shit that is thrown thrown at us in this life if we can work to reframe negative into positive if we can work to internalize our achievements and if we can work to um to internalize the the positive things that happen to us and and understand that relative happiness then that will boost our psychological capital and that will boost our individual feelings of psychological well-being what that will be absolutely pointless for is if I work in a toxic environment with very high workloads, with a boss who doesn't support me, with no career prospects, with terrible pay, with inequity, bullying, discrimination. It's kind of like, do you remember when Sally said, you know, if, if all the fish in the lake are dying, you're not going to blame the fish. And it's the kind of the same thing. Like it's, there is no point investing. This is why we get this backlash in terms of wellness washing or resilience training. There's no point in building the, the psychological capital of the individual if the organization is toxic because it's not going to, you know, it's like, it's like, like we said before, it's like using a plaster for a broken arm. Like it's just not an effective solution. So I don't think you can have one without the other. Um, but in terms of, of control and influence in terms of leaders, there are always going to be elements beyond your control within the personal life or or the psychological makeup of the people you employ where their state of emotions is going to change over time regardless of, of how good or bad their work situation is. So I think for leaders, it's what can I can control? I can't control how happy my employees are necessarily, but I can control the environment that is likely to result in positive well-being and therefore positive emotions, including happiness. Lovely. 
I love I love it when you explain things like this. I just I just get it, and I, I hope I hope the listeners do too, because I, th- I think from a psychological point of view, you could make this quite complicated by saying, "Well, Altman et al. in nineteen fifty six said so and so, and you don't. You go, this is how it is, and I love that." I have a situation that I read, a scenario read on Reddit. And I don't know whether this was a good thing or a bad thing that this boss did. So, essentially, let's just call this person Kevin. So Kevin had a really bad day. I don't know whether, I didn't go into why I had a bad day, but I'm guessing it was a work-related problem. So he was, um, boss sent him home a bit early. While this Kevin is commuting home, boss lifts the phone, speaks to Kevin's wife and says, okay, look, you know, Kevin... Kevin's coming home a bit early. Didn't seem like he had a great day. Again, I'm not sure how you feel about that. But but what I'd like to do is I've booked you a table at your favorite restaurant. I've paid for your meal and I've also paid for your favorite bottle of wine. Um, I've also found my babysitter can come around and look after your kids. She'll be there at half past six. Your table's booked for half past seven. So when he gets home, will you just rush him off to this restaurant and go and get, and everything's paid for. Mm-hmm. Now, Part of me went, oh, that's really nice. The part of me went, oh, I wonder what Leanne would think of that. Is that a sticky plaster? Is that just throwing money at the problem? Thoughts? I'm going to throw that back to you as an experienced Martin and coach. If you have an employee who is is either, you know, either you're observing unhappy feelings or more negative behaviours or has said to you, I'm really struggling, what would you do? The, the typical reply to I'm struggling is probably that probably to try and fix the struggle. When you've been a Samaritan or anyone who's learned the art of listening like we have, then you tend to go, in what way are you struggling? What are the key problems here? What are the opportunities? I sound a bit corporate. I didn't mean like SWOT analysis of your problems. But you tend to look at it as if, tell me more about how you're feeling about this as opposed to let's approach and fix this problem. So you make, I think you're alluding to the point that I, that as a leader, I should be talking to him about why his day was bad and why he reacted a certain way rather than just trying to solve the problem with a steak and a bottle of Chianti. Yeah, it's getting the whole, isn't it? That empathy is, is, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's having a conversation with somebody and going, yeah, that sounds a bit shit, actually. Tell me a bit more about that. And I think without diving into that, how do you know that your solution is even going to be effective? Maybe this person is really unhappy because he's going through a divorce with his wife. So finding his wife and taking him out for dinner ain't going to be great. Maybe they're having health problems and or they have IBS, so going out for a rich meal is the last thing in the world that they need. Maybe they're experiencing high of anxiety, so being in social situations in, in public is is they're really struggling with. Therefore, saying to a busy restaurant isn't going to be helpful. I think there is this, this misconception that by giving somebody an experience of pleasure is going to necessarily result in happiness. And happiness and pleasure are not the same things at all. As we know, even just from our brain chemistry, they are not the same things. So I think throwing things like that at people, I'm not sure being very effective. I'm not sure it'll be greatly appreciated by the person going through that. Um, And I think you're probably going to be wasting your money and potentially losing a bit of trust. I think if you have that scenario, then focus more on what is going on with that person it's a bit like when we were talking to jason from headspace on well-being 2.0 he said you know as a manager you don't you don't take accountability for the problem or the solution um 
And I think it's the same scenario there. And of course, you want to try and make it better. And, you know, you hear stories of, of people sending employees on holiday because they've had a particularly stressful period of time. Um, and I think it's really saying, you know, what does that somebody actually need in that moment? And I think if somebody is struggling, that might not be the best thing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe there are people listening out there who are experiencing burnout at the moment who are on holiday and then maybe starting to come to this realization that actually this isn't this isn't going to be the fix this is gonna it's gonna give a bit of pleasure and a bit of happiness and that that emotional state will be more positive for a finite period of time but it's probably not going to solve the problem yeah and i suppose the other aspect you just made me think of while he was explaining all that was that there is also then potentially a reciprocation like the person who's kevin who's had been bought this meal you can't go in then the next day and go, I'm still depressed. I'm still having a, you know, a shit day. He has to go in the next day going, oh, thank you so much. That was so amazing. Oh, I feel so much better. Even if he doesn't, because otherwise he's going to look ungrateful. Um, and so I, I can see that, yeah, I can see all the bad parts of that as well as the nice idea behind it. But yeah, okay, interesting. Even interesting. if you really simplify it to the point where <clears throat> Where, you know, a boss did that and, and this person went out with his wife and they had an amazing night, an amazing meal. Everything was great. Actually, it's because work was a bit rubbish that this person was unhappy. They had a brilliant night, loved it. Huge, you know, huge doses of happiness and pleasure in that state was, was brilliant. And they wake up the next day and they go to work and everything's still the same. They've come back to that, that base level again. So it's not going to... You know, do you appreciate that one day of, of or one evening of indulgence and pleasure? Of course you do. Has it fundamentally changed how happy I am in my job? No. Interesting. Quick announcement for all listeners. Yeah, I've got a I've got a new toy on my on my little deck thing, so I can make my voice change. Anyway, sorry. I Leanne. love it. Do it again. Hello, Leanne. Whoa! Do another one. Hello. <laughs> but we didn't interrupt your podcast listening for uh, for this. We actually interrupted it to tell you about one of our new favorite podcasts. It's called Success Story. It is hosted by Scott D. Clary, and it is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features question and answer sessions and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Oh, and if you like this podcast, then I think you'll love Scott's episode in back in December, where the infamous Seth Godin talks about empowering employees. So go listen to Success Stories wherever you get your podcasts. So we've already identified that happiness isn't something that leaders necessarily should be trying to bring to their their teams. It should be more about the level of well-being. But so in that case, then should leaders even care about happiness? Is that important? I think leaders should care about happiness and positive well-being, but that is kind of the outcome, isn't it? Mm. It's like saying, you know, should leaders care about being profitable? Of course, but caring about being profitable is not going to make a profitable business. You need to, to take action to deliver that profitability. So I think it's a similar thing with employees. If you want to improve well-being or happiness, you need to take action to improve those levels. And it is those things that you can control. And that is, as we've talked about before, now at RX7, you have reason. What is the, the mission of your company? And how does that translate into individual roles within your business? What are the relationships like? How are you training your managers to be able to support people during periods of, of high stress? 
in terms of professional development, what support are you giving people there? In terms of resilience, how are you helping people build their psychological capital? And often that is about rest and recovery. How are we making sure that people are taking appropriate breaks? They're able to disconnect from their work. These are all things within the work environment that we can control and we can change and we can make better. And these are the things that we know through research um, and through lots and lots of data translates to more positive feelings of well-being, fulfillment, employee engagement, and from a business perspective, more revenue, more profit, happier customers, lower attrition, lower retention, lower absenteeism. It is just good for business. So I think, should I care if my people are happy? Yes. But in terms of your world of control, um, happiness is it's, it's worth remembering that happiness and well-being is the outcome. Interesting. Okay. So any sort of Closing thoughts on this, tools, techniques, resources? Yeah, so I, I, so I guess that I know it's a typical kind of psychology thing, isn't it? Can we increase happiness? Yeah, maybe, kind of, it depends. We can, and there are things that have been shown to, um, to improve our happiness, our state of happiness throughout the day. So I've got a few that maybe you might want to think about in terms of, of your organisational structure, in terms of your individual practice. And here's the first one for you. Al, commuting. Does commuting make us happy? I doubt it. (laughs) No, it does not. Although, actually, that's not true. The answer is, as always, it depends. What makes us really unhappy is long commutes. So we know that long commutes are associated with lower job satisfaction, lower lower levels of well-being, increased strain, and poor mental health. We know that long commutes are really not very good for our sense of happiness. But what we have found through the research is that shorter commute times, particularly if we are able to walk to our to wherever it is we're going, to our place of work, then that is um, associated with improved psychological well-being and happiness. Interesting. And that does make sense because, yes, if you're commuting for an hour and a half each day into central London, that can't be much fun. Never done it, but it can't be much fun. But at the same time, we work from home and there's no real commute for us. So there's no opportunity to listen to a podcast or listen to some music or just get out of the house a little bit. I've heard of people who work from home um, who have an office um, and they actually have like a front door key for the office and they walk out their front door, back in through the back door and then go to their key and open up their office just because they have that little commute. So that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, like and it. that's actually what the research found that it's having this this um, allocated leisure time or mm. learning time, whether it be to listen to a podcast or listen to your favourite radio show or or music. Um, yeah, so I think there's two two things to, to bear in mind if you are thinking, hmm, how could I help my employees have a more positive commute as I'm, I'm asking them to be in the office for, for a certain period of time? I think there are two things. One, bear in mind that, again, if you have a toxic workplace culture and everything's going to shit, helping your people with their commute ain't really going to do much. And what the research shows is that um, everything needs to be controlled. So if everything is, is good at home, everything is good at work, financially we're stable, then our commute time will have an impact on our happiness. Otherwise, it's it's fairly, fairly minimal. And I think the second thing really is just to talk to people about it. You know, it is what causes the stress around commuting is the length of time, the busyness, the cost. As we know from our neurodiversity episode, uh, for certain people traveling at certain times a day can be very, very stressful. So it's things like, will it make a difference to my team member if they start work at 10? 
they would do 10 6 instead of 9 5 because that gives them periods of time where they can commute. Will it be better for them to work at home on certain days when it's not as, as when they're the kind of the busy times for commute? Or in terms of cost. So for example, if you've got somebody you've just recalled back into the office, they're getting the bus into work uh, because the tram is two quid more a day and it adds an hour to their journey. I mean, is that a big investment? Maybe, you know, £10 a week on a, on a member of staff to halve their commute time and potentially increase their happiness? I think it's worth a conversation. What do you think? Yeah, totally agree. That makes perfect sense. And it all comes down to this idea of having conversations with people. And it's such an arrogant point of view if you as a leader think, oh, I know what the problem is, it's commuting. So let me fix it by giving everyone extra £10 a month or £10 a week or something. The commute, the commute could be the favourite point of someone's day because they get away from their family or they get away from their wife or husband or partner. Um, it's just individualization, and just don't assume you know the answer to the problem. Learn more about the problem. What else you got, Lee? Random acts of kindness. This is a very viral thing, I think, isn't it, at the moment and, and has been for a long time and certainly something that a lot of organisations, I think, are adopting, random acts of kindness. It is, it is a really powerful way of improving our happiness. Our brain chemistry changes when we engage in random acts of kindness. And what's interesting is that actually it seems to have a bigger effect on, on the giver of the kindness rather than the person that receives the kindness. It increases our serotonin, our oxytocin, our dopamine changes. Um, so yeah, these things have scientifically been shown to increase our state of happiness, to give us a little spike uh, which is really nice. Again, of course, this is all this is all comes from a positive psychology. And what positive psychology means is we're starting at a really nice, comfortable level of mental health and well-being. And we're talking about how we can go from surviving to thriving, how we can kind of put that cherry on top of the well-being cake. And a lovely cherry is random acts of kindness. Again, if you're coming from a place of deficit, random acts of kindness are not going to have the same the same impact and the same effect. So I, again, and I think this isn't, there isn't a silver bullet. It's not a case of, oh, I will really improve my workplace culture by introducing random acts of kindness, um, but my staff can't get a GP appointment for four months and they're really struggling. Do you know what I mean? It's relative. Am I overlaboring this point now? Not at all. I'm a huge fan of that. And um, uh, we've done this before. We sat, I remember we were sitting in Belgrade in Serbia um, and um, we saw a couple who reminded us a little bit, I think, of us when we were first dating, um, although they're a bit younger, I think maybe in very early 20s. Um, and you could see that they ordered a bottle of wine and you could see that the way that they were handling it was showed they got so much respect for this wine. And so he was like, you know, pouring a little bit for her. She was tasting it. They were talking about it. It wasn't just that, oh, plonk, there we go, bosh. And, um, and so when we paid, we asked if we could pay for this couple's wine as well. And uh, then we left because we didn't want the reciprocation. We didn't want someone to come up and go, oh, thank you so much. We just left. And I like to think, and maybe they were really angry, I don't know. But I like to think that someone's gone, huh, that was really nice. And they're not around. And, oh, and maybe they've done a random act of kindness. And I know for a fact that improved, not improve our day. Our day was really great, but that made us happy all day. And I've thought about that quite a lot since then and I hope it brought them a bit of happiness. That's the really interesting thing about happiness is that it can be retrospective. Mm. So recalling a memory like that will give you a, a boost of serotonin and will increase your, your levels of, of happiness. What else you got, Lee? So finally, a little exercise I've mentioned before, vitals. This again is based on segment and positive psychology. 
So these are vitals. The first one is values. So basically, if your values are in alignment with the organization you work with, then that's going to have a positive impact on your happiness and your well-being. The opposite of that is it can lead to what is called moral burnout. So if your values are misaligned with the organization you work for, it will have a detrimental impact. So understanding your values is a really important way of assessing, um, I guess, how how a job might be suited to you, how an environment might be suited for you. And leaders making sure that those values are really clearly stated and as we know from last week, enacted. The second vital is interests. So this is making sure that our interests are being fueled. So this might be something that leaders can't necessarily control. But for example, there are lots of people who might have certain interest in charitable organizations or in volunteering or interest in terms of sports. You might have a sports club at at work. Um, Basically making sure that our interests are, are being fulfilled is really part of an important part of our well-being. Then we have temperament. So this is really kind of about how typically our emotions are. So if typically I'm a pessimistic person, then you might not want to put me in a role where I'm very customer facing and need to be happy and jolly all the time. Um, Similarly, if I am very quick to anger, you might not want to put me in the complaints department. Um, There's lots of different things like that. So really understanding kind of our typical emotions and and how how our temperaments are can help us understand the the types of environments we're likely to, to thrive in. A is around the clock. And this is kind of just what does our perfect day look like? So if you are a morning person, getting to work at seven o'clock and leaving at three might be your absolute dream because that's when you're at your best and you perform at your best. On the other hand, it might be that you you suffer with insomnia, which is a very common affliction for people who are neurodiverse. Therefore, being more of a, a later afternoon, evening person, you're going to be much more productive and effective in your work. So understanding kind of how you like to operate uh, the the time within your day can be really helpful. Then we have life goals. It's about making sure that our current environment or our current context, current role is actually aligned with what we want to achieve more um, more generally in our life. What this is really kind of thinking about this broadly as well. So I've talked to some coaches who are looking for new roles about this. And if one of their life goals is to have a family, then it is a case of we'll look at the maternity and paternity policies of the organizations you're going to, because that's going to reflect how much they value family and is that life goal aligned to the environment that you're going to be working in so you can think about that kind of a bit of outside the box as well and then finally strengths what am I good at what do I enjoy what do I I want to be doing with my time how do I want to leverage the things that I'm good at and the the idea is from a positive psychology perspective if our vitals are in alignment if they are being served and of course they can't all be be met 100% all the time but if the majority of them are we are much more likely to experience happiness if our vitals are completely misaligned um, and not being served by the environments that we're in we're very likely to experience levels of stress and potentially burnout yeah so it's based on a model by Seligman but it was Dr Audrey Tang who used this exercise in her book uh, The Leader's Guide to Resilience fabulous so I hope we've comprehensively covered happiness is there anything we've left out Lee? I think the last thing I would say is that happiness is definitely something that can be, I believe it can be increased, but I think it's more a case of mindset and a mindset that can be trained, like you were saying before. And I think a really useful thing to do as a leader is to think about reframing. And I know we've used that that term a lot. And reframing is really kind of taking something that that initially you, you perceived as, as negative 
and trying to reframe that as the opportunity. And that even might be somebody leaving your organization. How can you reframe that as an opportunity? Could it be to to shake up a team, to bring a new talent, to potentially outsource that that part of, of, of that role in your business to, to save money or improve efficiency? And I think this, um, and you could, you could approach it as a SWOT analysis, actually. That might not be a bad thing to do and quite an accessible thing for business leaders could do. Um, to do that on on maybe a change that has been out of your control. Because we talked about before, change the external, the psychological transition we need to go through to accept the change is a much more, uh, much slower and more laboured process. So that would what I would be my my advice as well if you're sat on your your lounge and maybe start to start to see if you can reframe some things that that perhaps you perceived as negative and how they may actually be a point of opportunity. Absolutely. And from a personal note, um, I think regular listeners will know, and if you've listened to other, our, our other podcast, A Sideways Life, you'll know that uh, that we lived that life a little bit differently. Over the last 10 years, traveled to 46 different countries, 200 Airbnbs and hotels. What's interesting is we've been to places like Myanmar or Myanmar. I'm not sure how exactly how people say it, um, but we've been there. And some of the, there was a fair amount of poverty, but people were generally just so happy. Same with India. Whereas you go to places that are prosperous, Germany, Luxembourg, perhaps not quite the same levels of happiness. So, you know, money isn't everything. People learn to be happy almost regardless of what their situation is if they decide to be happy. And my parting words would be, when it comes to your happiness or the happiness of your team, focus on the things that you can control. These are the things that are going to empower you to really take ownership of your own well-being and mental health and, and ultimately happiness. Focus on the things that you can control. The rest is just noise. I love it. We came up with an idea called the the ellipse of give a shittery. And you get these two Venn diagrams. And one of them is things you can, you can control. One of them is things that you care about. And then that little bit in the middle, the ellipse in the middle, that is the only thing you should be thinking about on a daily basis because you might care about the environment, but if you can't control it directly, don't worry about it. Just be happy. Okay, so next week is an exciting week because if you look at our episode number... You're going to see next week is episode 52. means we've been doing it for 12 months. Yay! It's we- our birthday! <laughs> it's our birthday. And I think Leanne has arranged some um, some treats and stuff mm-hmm. for us, not for you. No, no, no. no Just no, a no. few things to, to give us a hit of dopamine, Al, to give us a sense of pleasure. Maybe some uh, some endorphins, some things that we find enjoying that we that we enjoy to engage in, which um, which will be suitable for YouTube. Yes. So... <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about chocolate and what's it, aren't we? It sounds a little bit weird anyway. Mm. So let's leave it there and we will see you next week for our 52nd episode, our birthday. Very excited and um, stay happy. Be happy. Bye for now. Bye.